This is Beer and Bee Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Jason, what are we talking about today? Today we're going to talk about The House That Dripped Blood, 1971, Amicus Production. Michael, what are you going to be drinking? Today we're drinking something that's very hard to find. It's Cellar, Stellar Cellar. It's a collaboration between Cellador Cellars, which is out Southern California, and McLeod Brewing. McLeod Brewing brewed an IPA, and then Cellador took it and they soured it in oak, French oak barrels. So it's a soured IPA. I'll be honest, I've tried a number of sour IPAs and haven't really enjoyed them. This one, though, has changed my mind. Cheers. Cheers. It's got that funky, fruity nose of a sour. I like it. I think I mentioned before, sours, I'm about 50-50, as long as I don't get that pucker. Where it feels like someone's sticking a lemon and a lime into your mouth and going, take that. Exactly. aggressively sour. This one's more funky. That's what I like about it. It almost completely overwhelms the IPA. And then on the back end is where I get a nice little bitter hoppiness. It's really drinkable. There, if I wish I had a bigger bottle. It's a 375 milliliter bottle. So I think that it's a, this is a bang up job right here. If I was drinking this and I didn't see the bottle, I wouldn't have guessed it was an IPA. That sourness, it's only on the very back of the taste that I actually get that you IPA. Get, you get the hops. Yeah. The hops come in. And, and I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm, I'm no Cicerone. I've just, I've worked in beer a lot. If I blind taste tested this, I, w- I would have said this is kind of hoppy. I don't think I would have said this is a soured IPA. You can go to McLeod and get the original, the IPA, which kind of I want to do now to see what yeah. that beer is like. So this is this is great. Cellador yeah. is done. That pretty much what they do is uh, wild ales and sours. And the cellar, I like the name because there, there is a cellar portion to this movie. I wish I'd thought of that. I can't claim that. <laughs> Stellar cellar. Yes, the a very important part of this movie takes place in a cellar. Now, Michael, you chose this movie. I did. I chose it because it's fun. I think it's a B movie because it's from Amicus Productions. Amicus ran from 1962-1977, co-founded by a couple of Americans, Milton Sabotsky, Max Rosenberg. It's based out of England. Amicus often gets confused with Hammer Horror. They came out about the same time. Big difference. Hammer almost were exclusively in the Gothic, whereas Amicus was in the present. They did modern-day stories. Used a lot of the same actors as Hammer, but Milton Subotsky had a screenplay turned down by Hammer and got really angry. So that was one of the reasons he started Amicus. Amicus didn't have big budgets. They worked in genres. It's made up of four stories. Four stories with a framing story. Uh, I think they call it like a portmanteau. Okay. Mantu, portmanteau. But I call them anthologies. (laughs) I think I I can pronounce anthology better than that other term. Yeah, get... (laughs) You can kind of get over yourself. You know, they thrived on the anthologies. And a lot of them were written by Robert Block, who was a famous author. Psycho. Um, yes, Psycho, exactly. He wrote, all of these stories are based on short stories he did, had published before, and he wrote the screenplay. The framing, a member of Scotland Yard has showed up to this village constable about a missing actor. He is going to try to get some information from this constable who wrote this report about the missing person. And the console basically says, listen, I know you read my report, but really I have to talk to you about the house. All these stories, this house is the setting for those stories. The real estate agent who keeps renting this house out, his last name is Stoker. 
clue. Yeah. <laughs> Light bulb. Gives you an idea. <laughs> the local village constables, he's trying to tell the member of Scotland Yard that there's something fishy going on at this house. In these four stories, how much is a supernatural element that really takes place at this house? Too specifically, but they really don't have to do at the house. What happens supernatural occurs outside the house. And then in the other two, there's really nothing supernatural at all. Let me mention first of how well I think this this local village constable overall, I think he's trying to do the best job. I don't think he's a very capable constable. There's several points where in the first story, he describes the couple as a young couple. It doesn't necessarily fit the actual man. He doesn't mention in his report that he sends to Scotland Yard that he has suspicions about this house being a nexus of evil activity. And he mentions that he's, he felt out of his league writing a missing persons report. Yet one of these stories deals with an axe murder that took place in the village. And if you're able to handle like an axe murder, I think you write a missing persons report. Does he so, handle the axe murder, though? Well, it's his village, right? You know? I mean, I, who, we know that took place. We'll, we'll get to that, but... I question his ability as a police officer to handle these cases, and I'm not sure if he's really even... I'm not even sure that he ever went to this house. Robert Block did not write these stories specifically for the movie. They took four of his stories and said, we need to string a line through them so we can hang them as one. And so they came up with the framing story... I get the feeling maybe Robert Block at that point was just, give me my check. Thread that ties them all together is very shaky. So I'm going to talk about the first story, which is Method for Murder. And Robert Block originally published this in Fury Number no. 7 in July of 1962. It starts with, once again, the house of the framing device. Stoker, the agent, is there. And a young couple, in quotations, shows up. They're the Hilliards. And Mr. Hilliard, I don't know if I would describe him as young. Who is it? The actor's name... Ben Holm Elliott. There we go. Who who most people, especially in our generation, would know as Marcus from the Indiana Jones Raiders of the Lost Ark series. But he's, he's easily 40. And Mr. Hilliard is a suspense thriller writer. He writes about killers. He's had some writing block, so the, him and his wife decide, we're going to go lease or rent out a completely furnished house... In this village outside of, of London. So Mr. Stoker gives them a tour. There is a library that draws Mr. Hilliard of gothic books. I stopped and I looked at each of the titles. <laughs> there was The Complete Stories and Poems of Edgar Allan Poe, The Monk by Matthew Gregory Lewis, The Castle of Wolfenbach, The Orphan of the Rhine. It goes on and on, and then he is actually picks up The House of Death by Mar- Marcel Berger. That is the selling point. Like, I'm going to rent this. We're going to stay here. I'm going to get my writing juices back, and I'm going to write the next great thriller. And he's been very successful in his career. He starts a new story, and he's very excited. And very quickly, um, he draws a sketch of his villain, a Dominic, who is a strangler. An escape mental institute and strangles people. Now, that's the plot he tells his wife of his story. It's not much of a plot, and I don't know if there is any protagonist. But he does a really nice sketch really quickly of Dominic. As the days go past, he starts seeing Dominic. Oh, does he? Oh, he does. <laughs> and Dominic has some pronounced teeth and a bowl cut. <laughs> and he laughs. I don't know if it's a maniacal laugh or just it's a very goofy bad theater actor. Yes. 
And that's and that's, that's a tell right there, it, Michael. <laughs> it is. It is. And and he, and he makes some goofy faces. Yes. Where it's, sometimes it almost looks like he's flirting. Like he's outside the window going, mm, do you <laughs> see me? Do you find me pleasing? <laughs> Miss Hillier, she thinks her husband is having some mental health issues. And she points out she doesn't see Dominic. The mod clothing style... <laughs> I kept focusing on it. And Mr. Hillier wears something that he, he wears an ascot. It shows up quite a lot in other characters in this movie. Different ascots, I didn't really know until researching it how prominent it was at the time for men to wear day ties. This sent you down a rabbit hole <laughs> it did. of ascots. I started counting how many times different <laughs> ascots appear in this film. Anyways, back to Mr. Hillier. He eventually goes and sees a psychiatrist. Comes back home after a visit for a psychiatrist. There's a storm going on. He sees Dominic strangling his wife. And he runs to the kitchen. His wife's in hysterics because... She says, there's no Dominic here. You were strangling me. He really is losing his mind. He really begins to question it. So he goes back to see his psychiatrist. And he's completely, you know, heartbroken that his his mental stability is losing it. Well, he turns after... I mean, it's one of the shots where, you know, the first time he's facing a psychiatrist. And this time it just so happens he's facing away the psychiatrist. And he turns around. And he's seeing the psychiatrist being strangled by Dominic. Now, just to point out, once we there's a, this big twist reveal, did the psychiatrist, administrative assistant or secretary, not see Dominic? Like, Dominic has some superpowers where Dominic, he shows up. And... Dominic, Dominic keeps breaking into their home and sneaking about. And he sneaks in and strangles this guy. And the guy doesn't make a peep. And then it back to Miss Hillier getting a call. And she is heartbroken to hear that her husband is dead <laughs> in walks Dominic and then the big twist Miss Hillier and this actor she's clearly was in cahoots there is no Dominic this is her boyfriend and she has wanted to offer husband collect his money and run off with this actor who's portrayed Dominic from to point out that when you see the picture of Dominic that Mr. Hilliard scratches out on paper, his wife was really able to act fast and get Absolutely. get her boyfriend to look exactly like this picture. <laughs> to me, this was like an old hard-boiled fiction, film noir-style story dropped into a horror movie. Because there's no real supernatural element. Their idea was, was to off the husband. Very but complicated they, way to, to deal with your they, husband. <laughs> essentially drive him insane. Yes. <laughs> make him think he's a murderer and then make get him arrested for someone else murdering. And then twist number two comes because she's upset. She's like, you know, the intent was for you to just kill the psychiatrist and my husband go crazy. But in fact, he strangled both of them, the psychiatrist and Mr. Hillier. And then it turns out that this actor, who probably had some of his own issues, decides to strangle she Miss calls, Hillier. She calls him by his name, yeah. and he said, who's that? Yes. I'm Dominic. He mm-hmm. believes he's Dominic. That's the ending this kind of twist, very short story, and you're right, it's a crime story masquerading as a horror story. But I'm going to go back and touch the thing about the local sergeant, the constable of the area. He mentions that the police showed up and Dominic was still laughing. So my question is, this guy has to be really insane. He's, I'm not sure how fast the police got there. But that means what, he had to stand there and laugh the whole time. Yeah, well, but I also think he's insane. That's true. 
Overall, the story was short. You saw there was like two twists. I didn't see the first twist coming. I was like, why is he seeing Dominic? And so I liked that twist. The second twist I thought was just, oh, they're just doing this to, you know, make it more horrific. He has now assumed the Dominic persona. I was expecting a supernatural thing because I was watching a supernatural movie. The house that dripped blood. Well, no, there is no blood. By <laughs> There's me. no blood. In, in, spoiler <laughs> alert. There's no blood in this movie. No. There is no. And we will be talking about vampire. How that works, I don't know. This episode was very much, it could have been a Dateline episode. Yeah, that's that's all this <laughs> a is. crime of passion. I, I watched Dateline 48 hours, and that's all this is. The guy from Scotland Yard isn't really impressed with this story. So we go to Waxworks, which was released uh, in Weird Tales in 1939. This has Peter Cushing, a well-to-do retiree. He's moving into the house because what he wants to do is he's retired, and what he wants to do is what he enjoys, which is reading, listening to music, and gardening. Mr. Grayson, he has these long walks outside in his garden. Very dapper. Peter Cushing does is very mod dapper in this. I was impressed with his his clothing. Sometimes some of the sh- shoots where he's just walking, it looks like it's a commercial it for does. gentleman wear or it deep does. thoughts with Jack Handy. Even the music. The music yeah. lends itself to a commercial. <laughs> he does seem a little lonely. And he, at one point, goes into the village and sees a wax museum. Where it's waxworks of famous crimes and historical criminal elements although there is a wax statue of christopher lee as the dracula in that wax museum he comes across a waxwork of a woman she looks like the woman that he had at least love for it was maybe unrequited and then the really weird owner that's putting it nicely this wax museum shows up and describes how this was his wife, he tells Philip the story of his wife, Salome, and how she tends to have a strange effect on people when they visit. Clearly has an effect on Philip. There is no other customers in this wax museum. You can't understand how creepy the owner is. <laughs> yes. I mean, really upsetting. A great job acting. Yeah. I thought something but, but was But terrible as a business owner. Yeah. <laughs> because it, it's like not creepy, like, oh man, that was fun. That guy, it, it was like, that guy's upsetting. He chases customers away. <laughs> it looks like he has some prime real estate in that building. Right it's there in right the heart. It's right on that corner, right? Good, good locale. And he's just creepy creeperton all over the place. So Philip has this odd reaction to seeing that. Comes back home and he rips up the picture of June. And he realizes, I mean, June does look like Salome. You're looking at that picture and you realize it does look exactly it's like pretty. Salome. Yeah. And then he gets a knock on his door. And this is his friend Neville who's just like, knock, knock. Also an ascot wearer. Yeah. I think by the time Neville shows up, it's the fifth <laughs> ascot. And you could sense that there was some rivalry between them. And it seems odd that person that you, you know, maybe a frenemy with shows up and is like, hey, I was in the area. And he's just kind of standing there like, are things good? Copacetic between the two of us? And you get the sense that June probably came between the both of them. They were both in love. He find, Neville yeah. finds that picture, he, a torn picture of June in the garbage, and says, hey, you know what? Neither of us won. Are we good? Of course. Philip's like, of course. Like, come in. Stay, you yeah. know, stay the night. We'll and have... Peter Cushing, at that point, he wants company. At first, he wanted to be solitary, reading, listening to music, and gardening. He's a little unsettled by seeing this wax, uh, wax June and I'm, I'm assuming the creepiness of that wax museum owner. When's the last time you've been to a wax museum or um, anything like that? Oh, boy. I don't know if it counts, but probably the House in the Rock in, in Wisconsin. Okay. It's an odd little place. I know there's a wax 
There's like the Hollywood Wax Museum right I've never there. Been in that. I've never been there. I think honestly the last time I've been to a wax museum is when mo- there used to be a Movie Land Wax Museum in Buena Park. It is closed now. It's been closed for years. Their, their sign, which was kind of a landmark in Buena Park right next to Knott's Berry Farm, was taken down recently. I think that was the last one I went to. And, and I distinctly remember Christopher Reeves in a Superman Fortress of Solitude. <laughs> I don't know if that is a source of entertainment anymore. Clearly at one time they're very popular this guy clearly is not running his business very well because this is this is based on horrific wax figurines of torture and crimes like jack the ripper very much like the horror movie wax works so philip and neville rekindle their friendship and neville staying with him i don't know it seems like a weekend and they go into town neville seems like i want to see the town i want to see what's going on they're right back there at the wax museum he's like i'd love to see that <laughs> but here you get an impression where if Neville hadn't shown up, Philip would have probably went on with his life because yep. Neville wanted to go. He goes, oh, I haven't been to a wax museum yep. since I was a kid. And Peter Cushing visibly looks, no, I don't want to go there. And they go and he goes, it is rather dull, isn't it? Yep. Peter Cushing's like, yeah, let's go. Let's book it. They come across the wax statuette of Salome. And Salome, she is holding a severed head on a platter. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's important. You can see the effect of on both of them Neville is now he's he's, he's possessed the whole thing kind of scared Philip but Neville got hooked by this and then there's a lot of back and forth because they decide to like hightail out there Neville says hey man thanks for putting me up I'm Ed now glad that we have reestablished our friendship I'm out of here then Philip somehow gets back in town and I don't know if it's a day later or that evening and he sees Neville's car parked right in front of the museum he finds Neville staring at Salome. And Neville spots Philip and he takes off running. Philip returns to the, his home and Neville's there. And Neville's drinking. Said, yeah. <laughs> he let himself in and fixed himself a drink. Because that's what happens once you've reestablished your friends after being frenemies for I'm so gonna, long. I'm going to drink you dry. Yeah, I'm just going to walk into your house. <laughs> you know? Just fix my ascot, fix a drink. He says, hey, sorry, it was crazy, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I gotta go. And he yeah. knocks this drink back and he goes, yeah, I'm driving back tonight. Yeah. And it's just one of those things. And, and actually Peter Cushing takes the glass, kind of holds it up and he goes, drive carefully. Yeah, exactly. One for the road. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's the end of the night. <laughs> so but, he leaves and that's probably the end of the story. But then Neville calls him and said, hey, I can't leave. And Philip's like, don't go back to the museum. Yeah. He said, where are you staying? I'll stay there. So Philip, there's this... Driving back and forth between the town a lot in, in either one day or yeah. a, a weekend. For a man who keeps, like, he says over and over, he's like, I don't need to go into town. I don't need to go into the village today. So he spends a lot of time in the village. He walks into the wax museum and he goes over to Salome and there is a new head sitting on the platter and it is Neville's. That's some quick wax work. I don't know how wax working works. Well, I'm sure it's not within like five, ten minutes. If you're going to do someone's <laughs> actual head, you'd at least need to have to like dry it out. And that dude didn't have time. So there he is. And he goes, whoa, yeah. Neville's head on the platter. And then the owner comes out. And that owner is One. wielding an axe. <laughs> and this is a big confession from the owner of this Waxworks where, you know, he actually killed Salome. And he killed his friend Neville. 
and now Philip is gonna suffer the. And I feel bad for Philip. I do too because he, I, like I said, if it wasn't for Neville, Philip seemed like he was never gonna go back in that. Music. No, never again would he set foot in that stinky. No, he music. ripped up the picture of of, of Jim. Yeah. like he, like there was something that set him off. Like I can't go back there. So they have this crazy fight, and it it feels at some one point Peter Cushing. Yeah, you're rooting yeah, for him. Yeah, and get it away. does feel like oh he's gonna get away. And it, there are certain points where you go, dude, the exit's behind you. You turn and run away, but he keeps engaging the guy. Looks like he might get away, and then, oh, uh, no. So we cut to a young man. An yeah. actual young man. Yeah, an actual young man. <laughs> because, <laughs> Unlike Mr. Hillier. <laughs> or, or Peter Cushing, for that matter. Exactly. Sporting that ascot, and he's walking down the street, and like all you know, 20-somethings, you see a wax museum in the 70s, and you're like, that's where I want to spend some money. And he walks in there. Once again, just point out how poorly this proprietor runs there. No one's ever taking tickets <laughs> like that. People are just really kind and throwing their money up there on the counter and walking in. And he walks over to the statue of Salome. And sure enough, it's now Peter Cushing's head. I would just like to really add this at the end. I know looks aren't everything, but how did that schmo museum owner <laughs> score Salome? Because she is a drop-dead gorgeous, lovely young woman, and this guy's just creepy. You know, sometimes opposites attract. <laughs> I mean, I guess so. This one is odd. I felt bad for Philip. He got pulled into something. Nothing actually takes place at this house that dripped blood. Except this some is, drinking. <laughs> some drinking. And, and some reading. Some and reading. some listening to music and gardening. Ascot we, we wearing. We see gardening. <laughs> we don't. You're right. We, we don't. never do see any gardening. <laughs> Maybe if he had gardened, put a little more time into his garden. <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. <laughs> None of this. I'm going to go back once again to this constable of the area. So this took place in his village. And if that... Because now I'm assuming that first head that you saw was probably the head of another victim. Oh, absolutely. So he had an axe murderer who is chopping off heads and then presenting them in his museum. Like, he's not trying to really hide it. If you were looking for Peter Cushing, if you're looking for Philip, and he bumped into a couple while he was in the village, and people are like, oh, that older guy who's trying to live alone? Yeah, we saw him walk into there. The police, the constable might want to walk in the museum. He can't be bothered with Could I get him? A, a refill. Do we have any more of this? No. Or, oh, we're done. No. Drank it all. It's delicious. I'm glad you like that. I do. That was, yeah, it was really good. For a sour, which, like I said, it's always been 50-50 with me, that was delicious. Now we get into, we got Sweets to the Sweet. That is from Weird Tales, 1947. Christopher Lee, who's great. Just being Christopher Lee. Just yes. being the stoic, slightly menacing father. He's moving into the house with his daughter, He's very curt. He's got this lovely little daughter, Jane, and he's going to be in London a lot, so he needs to have a teacher. So he brings in a, the tutor, Anne, interviews her. She was, she says, I want to meet the daughter, right? Meets the daughter, finds out Jane's a little, a little odd. She doesn't have toys. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't go to school. These things all just should be like red flags. You think, whoa, something's wrong with her dad, right? She says, something's wrong with your daughter. And he goes, uh, so you're not taking the job. She goes, oh, on the contrary, I'm staying. We're kind of going, this is all nice. She's teaching the little girl. But the little girl does these odd little things, you know, like when she go grab a book. She's reading books on witchcraft. <laughs> and they're taking a walk through a park. And she's like, hey, let's name trees, which is a great little thing for kids. And then she walks up to a tree and she's like, what's this? 
That's a yew tree. In the olden times, it was thought to be evil. And Anne looks down at her and just has a look like, what is going on with this kid? Every time she asks Christopher Lee if she can do something for the girl, or he's just, no. And then she finally says, can I get her some toys? He's like, well, that's okay. So she goes and gets toys. One of them, though, is what? It's a doll. It's a classic baby doll. And I got to say, if Christopher Lee doesn't want the kid to have dolls or anything, and he says yes to toys, it's a little girl. If I'm buying a bunch of toys for a little girl, one of those toys will be a doll. He comes in and just, oh, what the, what's going on is this? And Anne says, you know, you said I could buy her toys. And he's like, (laughs) he throws the doll in the fire, which is just gross. Thinking about all this plastic and stuff melting and stinking up your home. That is the meanest thing a dad could do. We sort of learn there's a reason for his overprotectiveness of Jane. And it's one thing I kind of like about this one is it does kind of make sense. But it was something I was kind of picking up on is that he keeps referring to her mother. Her mother is dead. And that was another thing. He, he said, I was glad when she died because I knew what she found out what she was. And don't you think this is one of the tropes that exists in horror? Or don't let people know the full story until it's way too late. <laughs> it is. And I, I even made note of this, though, is that in this instance, it makes sense because what we find out is Jane's mom was a witch. You can't say, I can't let my daughter have dolls because her mom was a witch and I think she's a witch and she's going to use that for evil purposes because you won't have a daughter very long. They will take that daughter away. So in a way, his reticence to divulge any information sort of makes sense to me in this because it's unbelievable. He's using an electric razor was probably sort of new at the time. I think electric razors. And he use, he's using it. And when he leaves the bathroom, Jane goes in and collects some hair. And that is just a big tell. You're, you're like, oh, this little girl's. This is some Damien stuff going on here. Because Christopher Lee's in, in London doing business. There's a big business thing going on. <laughs> signing papers. And, this is, and all of a sudden he starts going, ah, and he's yelling. And he's in clear pain. And he's, you can tell he knows something's up. So he goes home. And once again, there's a storm. Storms seem to happen in this part. It is England. True. But a a nice storm breaks out and they lose light. So he goes looking for candles. And they aren't where they're supposed to be. Finds a box of candles. And clearly candles are missing. And he goes from looking sort of angry and Christopher Lee-like to starting to look a little scared. He's in a panic. Anne doesn't know, like, what's going on? What's going on? And so he meets Jane at the top of the stairs, and he's like, where are those candles? Where are those candles? And she just stares at him. And so he smacks her, and Anne is beside herself. And Jane just kind of goes, meh, and walks away. He clearly knows something about witchcraft. If when he recognizes the candles are gone, it doesn't go like, oh, well... Maybe someone used him in the last store. He immediately goes to his daughter did something nefarious with them. He married a witch and clearly he found stuff out and had a child with her. He has some knowledge of what takes place in witchcraft. I wanted to know the backstory about his wife. I wanted there, There's a whole story there. Yeah. He's having problems. She's clearly got a doubt. And they show her. That's when I said, okay, this kid, this kid needs to go. Because they show her jabbing a needle into 
the doll and laughing at me like, ha, 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 knowing it's her dad that she's torturing. So you go, oh boy, Christopher Lee was right all along. At this point, I started thinking Anne is a witch that's come to take Jane back to like a coven or something. And I, and I really did. She arrived at the perfect time. Yes. And she's nurturing the kid's knowledge and she's, you know, fighting the dad. She's sort of defiant against the dad. And I'm thinking, oh, these guys are going to take Christopher Lee out and it's going to end with her walking away with Jane. Witches. Exactly. <laughs> you mentioned classic Christopher Lee. He doesn't wear ascot. It's one of the, this is one he's of the a, He's a tie man. Yeah, he's a tie man. <laughs> this is the, the only story where there's no ascots to be found. <laughs> You're absolutely need to right. Point that out. I just want to point out that at a certain point in the story, Christopher Lee is reading Lord of the Rings. And I find that just, you know, a little foreshadowing about his career later on. It makes it makes sense. I mean, yeah. everybody, especially in England, I of think course. they were reading that. It is funny that he's reading that. And I wonder if it ever... I bet everybody wanted to play Gandalf. Yeah. But, but it's Christopher Lee. <laughs> he's still got to play wizard. Yes, he's a very important part of, of the story. What do you think that character's endgame was? I mean, you're going to raise a kid and not allow them to have any interaction at all? No, what his goal was. No, I, I, I don't either. He just seems to be, well, I'm going to go plan her out in the middle of nowhere with no toys and a tutor <laughs> and just hope that she buys my line, just accepts what I say. And she I, has inclinations of being a witch. <laughs> if, you're, if you're worried about that, it's just going to get worse when she gets older. I don't think he had an endgame. I think he was just hoping for the best. We get to a point where he's in bed and he's screaming in pain. And Jane's, you know, I think she's giggling, yeah. stabbing it with this needle, being nasty. At this point, you're just going, oh, she's not just an innocent little bit. She's a nasty little girl. She's bad. She's bad. And Anne, she's she's like, what do I do? And he's like, find the doll. And at this point, it seems like she believes him. Goes looking for Jane. She's like, Jane, Jane. And finally finds her and she's got the wax doll. And she says, give that to me. And she said, it's not a doll. It's wax. At which point, I would just smack the kid, too. Because I'd be like, you little brat. Don't, don't sass me like that. You know exactly what that is. So before, before Anne, Anne can get to her. She takes the doll, chucks it in the fire, which is what you do with dolls in this house. Exactly. <laughs> and you immediately hear Christopher Lee scream, this agonizing <laughs> scream. And Anne is just mortified on her face. And it was one of those moments I thought, what do you do if you get that doll? Is there, if you can't burn it, you can't. You know what I mean? Yeah, now it's, it's connected a, to him. You can't do anything it, but like, I'm just going to put it? this you can bury somewhere it in, on the top shelf. Yeah. <laughs> Let it collect that. Exactly. Like, what What do you do? I would be so horrified to have that doll in my possession. I like this one. It was my favorite. It had supernatural elements. It followed a certain amount of logic. Mm -hmm. It didn't have the weird time issues that some of the other ones did. It wasn't so much a twist up until the very end. I thought Anne had come to as a witch to help the younger witch sort of come into her own. And she ended up just being a tutor. This was a, sh a story with that another evil kid trope. You know, children are evil. Be wary of them. If Christopher Lee have, would have just told Anne, the tutor, I'm hiring you now. I just want, in all confidence, my daughter's a witch. <laughs> she might be trying to kill me. <laughs> Keep an eye on her. And none of this would have happened. And it was all about keeping secrets. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least maybe make something up. Going back to the creepy kid trope, this was a sweet little innocent girl. 
really up until the end. So it did not telegraph it. It wasn't up until she was gleefully stabbing that, that I went, oh my goodness, this thing this thing should be thrown in a bag and tossed in the pond. <laughs> like, which, I hate to say it, but that was a better game plan for Christopher Lee's character than what he was doing. I don't have any kids, and I wouldn't know how to plan for a regular kid, but if I had a kid that I thought, eh, it's a witch... What am I going to do? Yeah, I, I <laughs> and an evil witch at, at that. <laughs> Obviously, my brain turns right to a bag of rocks <laughs> in a pond. So I might not be the person to ask. <laughs> this personally, I think, is my favorite. I want to point out, Christopher Lee's character was the second actual death occur in the house. The next story, Michael. The, the cloak <laughs> I found unknown when it was published but 1939. It stars John Pertwee who was a Doctor Who and Ingrid Pitt's bosom. That's all I can say. <laughs> Google it. He's an actor, and he is an actor. He takes himself very seriously. Also, John Pertwee, I read, he said when they were shooting it, it was supposed to be kind of a horror comedy until one of the producers, and I'm guessing it was uh, Milton Sabatsky, came onto the set, saw what they were doing, and blew a fuse and said, "You, it's not a comedy. This is a horror movie make it scary well they already had shot this one in particular was very silly so they just went back and were like i guess we got to try to make it look scary so he plays an actor and i believe he has an ascot <laughs> he does <laughs> we're back to the ascots yes. and he wants to stay at the house while he's filming at shepperton studios which is actually where the movie was filmed so he's touring the house he's walking through and mr stoker is saying, hey, you want to stay here? There's some things you should know. And he's like, oh, are there ghosts? And, he, and he's like, well, no. At that point, I kind of go, how can Stoker say that? Something's going on in this house. Uh, can you say definitively that there are no ghosts in this house? This house is bad. At least it attracts people that bad things happen to. Not necessarily at the house, but near it in the vicinity. John Pertwee is having so much fun with this character. He's like, oh, uh, you know, it's too bad. I wish wish it did have a ghost. I'm a, I'm a bit of an expert in the supernatural and occult. <laughs> He's very fond of telling people how much he knows. And Ingrid Pitt's bosom says, yeah. yes, he is. He knows a lot. This is the third movie I've done with him. And he's amazing. He knows everything about the occult. He's just hamming it up. We find out he's in a grade Z. Revenge of the Bloodsuckers, I think, is the name of the movie. And he isn't happy. Oh, he's miserable. You, They go, there's a miniature that he's looking at, and that's okay. It's a cool miniature. I'd love to yeah. have that in my house. And then and he says, this is okay. This is not. He goes over to the regular set and starts poking holes in it with his cane and they're saying, that was just freshly painted. And he's like, that's the problem. And all oh, the old days. And here, John Pertwee said he based his his acting on Christopher Lee. <laughs> and he said he didn't think Christopher Lee ever got it. Because at one point, he's, he's going on about the old days, how they were so much better with horror movies. And Frankenstein, The Mummy, Dracula. Yeah. And he goes, the Bela Lugosi, not that new guy. <laughs> and not that new guy. That new guy yeah, he's talking about is Christopher Lee. Lee. So he's like, it was all in good fun, but he said they came in and screwed it all up. In Fright Night, Rodney <laughs> McDowell's character reminds me of this character. <laughs> Very much so. The only difference being Paul Henderson takes himself seriously. Oh, yes. So the, the final thing, he hates the sets, he hates the movies, and, and then the poor costume lady comes over and hands him a cloak, and he, that's it. The cloak is the final straw. 
So off he goes to find his own cloak and, of course, stumbles upon it. You know, this place has a wax museum and then it also has this creepy little antique place. It clearly is like an occult store. (laughs) And the motifs like cobwebs, black black candles. candles. And which one of the things I love is this this creepy guy comes out, but he's also he's like a character from a Mel Brooks movie. He's the proprietor, and he like, looks kind of scary, but then when he starts acting, it's like almost a comedy acting. And Paul Henderson's holding a black candle, and, yeah. and the man is like, oh, you're a, you're a fellow, fellow person. He's like, oh, I've, I've done it. you know, yeah. I've done the black mass and yeah. in my movies. <laughs> and he specifically says in my movies. So I go, wait a second. So you're just full of it. And the, and the man goes, you know, well, what can I help you with? And he goes, a cloak. And the guy's, he has these huge bushy eyebrows. They look like some sort of tropical caterpillars. The big long things that just parked above his eyes. They're great face and his eyes light up and he goes, a cloak. He pulls this cloak out of an unlocked safe. Because this is an important cloak, people. He pulls it out and he says, here. And Paul tries it on. He goes, oh, it just got cold. And he's like, do you like it? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, how much do you want? And he's like, 13 shillings. And he's like, what is that, a week? And he goes, no, 13 shillings and it's yours. And he goes, it's an odd price. And I, and you're going, no, it's not. 13's an unlucky number. After he leaves, the proprietor goes, you know, now I can, sl-, I think he says, now I can sleep. And you go, oh boy. So that's, that's an interesting, yeah. the thing is, is, this could have been the scariest of them. It could have been. But it was played for laughs. I have to point out, the outfits that Ingrid Pitt wears in this. Oh boy. It, they're fantastic. They um, are. She's she's she doesn't have a large speaking role in this, but she does a fantastic job. And, <laughs> and I'm just going to say it this the speaking part it's a little rough. Yeah. I think it's not the best acting, but they yeah. they hired her for for two assets. Exactly. And the- <laughs> they're on display wonderfully. Call us what you want. I'm just being honest. So after he he has the cloak, he's on the set, he's in his dressing room. There are all these great pictures of John Pertwee around his dressing table. And if you look closely, like some, some of them are pretty funny. He puts on the cloak and he looks in the mirror and he doesn't see himself. He's casting no reflection. And he kind of freaks out and he takes it off and it, he's there again. He's quite unsettled. You mentioned those pictures. I There is a picture of him as Doctor Who. And the outfit that he's wearing before he puts the cloak on is the same outfit in that picture. Then he goes out on set. And that's when he's out on the set, there's a scene where he is supposed to be very menacing and very gothic. He's going to grab Carla, the Ingrid Pitts character, and he's supposed to bite her. But they give him that cloak, and in fact, he really does bite her. It's upsetting to her. It's upsetting to the cast. Do you have to say the face he makes because because he's supposed to do the fake bite and he goes in and then we get a close up of him and he sort of, he looks up and he just makes this goofy face on purpose mind you yeah. it, it's on purpose he's just being silly and then he bites in yeah. so he he feels bad he wants to try to make it up to Carla so he, he invites her for dinner she comes over and he starts telling her about the cloak and she's just laughing at him and he says no I'm serious and we're coming up on midnight and he says if I put this on you know, at midnight, I'm going to have to feed on blood. He's like, and she says, prove it. So he goes, gets the cloak out of his little cupboard, and he puts it on and starts like licking his lips, waiting, <laughs> doing all these great John Pertwee rubber face things, and nothing's happening. And she's just kind of laughing, and he goes, oh, he's like, that's odd. That's it's not spo- how it's supposed to work. And he takes it off, and he sees a tag that says Shepperton Studios, and he goes, oh, this isn't the cloak. And 
Carla goes, I know it isn't. This is. And she pulls it out and he goes, no, 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 no. Don't do that. And she's laughing and she puts it on. He starts running upstairs. She gets teeth. She starts flying. All of a sudden, the big reveal, as you're staring at Ingrid Pitt's bosom, she says, (laughs) We loved your films so much. We wanted you to become one of us. Welcome to the club. So that's the end of that. And, you know, Scotland Yard guy. He now, he had left the constable. He got enough of his questions answered. He goes, he's going to interview Stoker, the real estate agent. And so he's going there and he's like, just give me the keys. And Stoker is very reticent to give him the keys. So this is a part where I don't understand his character. He is, you know, the old house of mysteries and the house of secrets where there's always someone who's introducing stories. I think Stoker is that character, kind of. But he didn't want to give the keys at first to the investigator, but he finally like, it's, fine. It's night. Yeah, you don't want to go there. You're by yourself. Yeah. And he said the power's off. What is the point of going there at that time? You can get it in the morning, get up, have a good breakfast, go check the house out. Because now we're at the point where he was sent to this village to investigate the disappearance of Paul Henderson. And I'm assuming also the disappearance of Carla. You know, they never bring that up. No. It's the famous actor. The famous they actor. They just talk about the famous actor. <laughs> and you, you would think, you know, he's a member of Scotland Yard, so he shows up, he has the keys, he doesn't bring a flashlight. No. Even though Stoker's like, it's at night, there's no power there, be wary. He, he gets and he's like, ah, oh, I don't have a flashlight. But he finds this huge candelabra. Huge. I don't know how you carried that with one hand. And then he finds a cellar, he goes in the cellar, and he finds a locked door. And he's like, well, I'm going to go in there. And what does he find? Two caskets. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we hear the chimes of midnight. And you're like, oh, this is not going to bode well for him. <laughs> One of the caskets slowly opens. Paul Henderson, now a vampire. And horrific as up. a vampire. This yep, is the time where it's scary, scary, not hamming it up. <laughs> I got to backtrack just a little bit, though, because, again, you go down into that creepy cellar and you find an old wooden door with a lock on it. Because it was locked, correct? It was. Yes, it was locked by who? We don't know. Stoker? The the sergeant? I mean, clearly he didn't search the house. He would have found these yeah. caskets. Anybody looking the, searching the, this home the, would have found these caskets. You know, at that point you go, I'm going to come back tomorrow. That door's locked. It'll be locked tomorrow. So he's in there. Paul Henderson comes out. And it is scary. It is. And he comes at him. And, and real, they speed it up. So, you know, it's like he looks like he's falling back. The Scotland Yard guy, he falls back, smashes a chair. Poor Paul Henderson doesn't make a very good vampire because no. he just immediately like stabs him in the chest. Well, then at first he's he's, he's strangling him. Yes, and it's, it's a flashback to Dominic where I don't think a vampire is a strangler, but he's like really trying yeah. to strangle this investigator. And I thought they were supposed to have superhuman strength, but Scotland Yard gets away and ends up stabbing yeah. him in the heart. Oh, with wood. It's over for poor Paul Henderson who had just joined the Vampire Club. Short, he had a short tenure. <laughs> All of a sudden, creak, creak, second opens, and up pops Ingrid Pitt's bosom. And, I mean, here's the thing. If I got to go out by a vampire, I'd rather her than John Pertwee. (laughs) Agreed. But she does a smart thing. She turns into a bat. And the the guy at Scotland Yard's like, I can't fight this, apparently. I can't fight a bat. So I just scream. (laughs) And then then we cut to Stoker, who's standing outside the gates to the house. And he turns and he addresses us, the audience. And we find out what the big secret is. The house takes on the personality of the person living there and then treats them accordingly. It, it makes no sense to me, Michael. And for some reason at the end, they decide to have Mr. Stoker break the fourth wall and talk yeah. directly. 
it, it was an odd kind of fun but then I, it yeah. just made me more confused I said what does that mean you know and, and then he said he's looking for a new resident you know perhaps you would like to move in and I go I don't know what that means because if it takes on the personality of the person are we to assume that Denholm Elliott wanted to be a strangler he wanted or to be wanted Dominic. to be strangled to death. Yeah, right. Exactly. You know that Christopher Lee <laughs> wanted to spontaneously combust in his own bed. It raised more questions than it answered. Didn't answer anything. I mean, I love the idea of like a house sort of possessing the person or or taking on that personality, but none of that really happened. I mean, the only one was was Paul Henderson. He was so into the occult and so into being a va- playing a vampire. Going to make it so you turn into a vampire. That's the one that made sense. And that's why they probably put that last, so you wouldn't think about those other stories. And like, wait a second. <laughs> and, and, and then at one point, I said, "I'm thinking way too much about this. This is driving me nuts." And it's it's just the house that drips blood from Amicus. I don't I don't get it. I mean, I enjoyed it. This is a fun little movie. It's not gory. There's no swearing, you know. So it's something like little kids could even watch. And I think they'd just be like, this is silly and fun. There's a chance I'd watch it again, just for fun. Like, I would recommend it as well. It's something that I could sit there and watch like with my kids, tweens and teens. You know, besides Ingrid Pitt's bosom, you know, it's a pretty G-rated movie. Yeah. It has what I think of as, you know, Ray Bradbury Theater, Twilight Zone, that, the monsters. Creep show. The creep show, like that, where there's a twist at the very end yeah. of every single thing. And there's I'm a short... fan of the anthology. Genre. Yeah. It, it, and I, I, get, I get a kick out of those movies where it's twi- like the Twilight Zone, the movie or something, where, where they're doing, we're going to get like four different stories and try to weave them together. They didn't do the best job, but they also just took four separate stories that had no connection and tried to make the connection. And I think we just got way too deep into it. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, check it out. I have two final comments I, I want to make about this to, on, on my closure before we say goodbye to our beer that we're wrapping up. One is, I don't know anything about Doctor Who. But I think <laughs> if you're a Doctor Who fan, you should really check this out. Because let me just go over this list. One, John Pertwee. How do you say his last name? I could. I, I say Pertwee. He played the third Doctor. Peter Cushing played Doctor Who in two movies. Joanna Lumley played the female Doctor Who in a 1999 comic relief Doctor Who, The Curse of Fatal Death. Jeffrey Belden played Doctor Who in audio dramas. And Ingrid Pitt, she was in two episodes of Doctor Who. So if you're a Doctor Who fan, watch this movie. There's a lot of Doctor Who stuff going on. And two... I learned a lot about ascots. And the ascots are considered informal. It's always under the collar and everything like that. So that's why you call you see them, it's wrapped around the neck, it's under the collar, as, as opposed to a tie that goes around your collar. Besides Fred from Scooby-Doo, ascots have been very minimal in my life. I would like to say you're pretty much not going to find this beer because it is based out of Los Angeles and doesn't distribute very much at all. Sometimes we try to pick things that uh, should be readily available to a wide audience. Sometimes we'll have things that are very local, because you'll hear me say this ad nauseum. Support your local brewery. But the Stellar Cellar, a collaboration between Celador and McLeod, this is one of my favorites that we've done so far. I love this beer. This was outstanding. It was, And for Sour, I really liked it. And I like the fact that Cellar, and that's where the movie ends, exactly. in a Cellar. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I wish I, I wish I had thought of that. I can't take credit for that at all. Oh.
Alright then. This is Beer and B Movies. I'm Jason. I'm Michael. Burn, witch, burn, witch, burn, burn, burn.